This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. Um, I'm your host, Britt Edelin. Um, and today I have with me, speaking about his book, um, Richard Kearney, a professor of philosophy at Boston College, who is the author of numerous books, um, both critical books um, on contemporary philosophy and culture, as well as novels and poetry. Um, Welcome to the the network, the podcast today, Richard. Thank you. Welcome. Uh, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. It's great to have you here. And today we are talking about your your new book. It's called Touch: Recovering Our Most Vital Sense, and it's out through Columbia University Press. Um, it was published earlier this year. It was a really interesting read, and I'm excited to talk to you about it today. Good. Um, so before we get more into the um, theoretical and um, the theoretical questions that the book raises, I want to ask, you know, what are your origins, both um, more broadly, philosophically or culturally? And then what brought you to writing this book? Hmm. Well, I'm Irish, uh, born in Southern Ireland in uh, the 1950s. Um Grew up in a pretty conservative, you know, sort of Catholic uh, nationalist culture um, uh, where I would say touch was not, you know, um, a, 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 a vital ingredient of everyday of everyday living. Although I came from personally a medical family where touch was important and a very affectionate family. But um, Ireland would have experienced, you know, Puritanism, both Protestant Puritanism and Catholic Jansenism, as it was called. Uh, which was, um, you know, Victorian, but sort of carried over into the 20th century. So I grew up in a culture where, unlike, say, the French or the Italians, um, where, where, you know, tactile relations are very much part of everyday living. Um, in Ireland, it wasn't so much the case. And also, I was aware that uh, in the north of the country in the 60s and 70s, there was a war going on, a war of religions. And this um, made me appreciate in many respects the importance ultimately of the handshake that, you know, uh, violence is one form of touch, which, which, you know, causes pain and torture and death. But there's another kind of touch, which is that of the handshake. And the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland uh, between Ireland and Britain um, and the two communities in Ireland, uh, which was signed in 1998, was sealed with the handshake, where the old enemies came together. And in a gesture of touch, open hand to open hand, they made peace. And that that did 
affect me very much. You know, when John Hume won the Nobel Peace Prize, you know, shook hands with the terrorists and uh, shook hands with the unionists. These were very, very significant moments. Civilization, you know, begins with the handshake where two people throw aside their weapons and uh, extend open palms to each other in an act of trust. And so, you know, we need to renew that act of civilization after periods of war and, 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 and conflict and violence. And this is true of Northern Ireland. It's true of uh, South Africa, the famous handshake between uh, Mandela and de Klerk. It was true in the Middle East between Begin and Sadat and, and so on and so forth. So the importance of the handshake was, was very, very, um, very vivid for me because of my experience uh, in Ireland. That's um, a really interesting story. Um... And really interesting in that it bridges the personal and the political, or if we can come up with a, a divide between those, that's that's might be up for debate. Um, and I wanna I wanna talk about touch, obviously. And before we get into the first chapter of your text, I'd like to talk about um how how it needs to be recovered. So the fact that it's titled "Recovering Our Most Vital Sense" implies that it's lost in some way. Um, and I'm wondering if you can talk about how it's lost, um, what led to the decline of touch, and perhaps um, was there an originary moment when touch might have been the most important, um, that you, you do talk about this, like in ancient Aristotelian sure. thought? Sure. I mean, I think touch has always been the most important <laughs> from the beginning of time and still is, but I think our culture has diminished its our understanding of its importance. And I would say three things about this. I would say Platonism. I would say digitalization, uh, contemporary di- digitalization in, in, our, in, our, in our current world. And I would say the COVID pandemic um, have all, in a way, marginalized touch in different ways. So let me, let me say a quick word about each of the three. Plato, when he defines what a human is, anthropos is is the Greek word for the human. And in one of his dialogues, he says the anthropos is, and this is what the word means, the one who stands up, the one who raises him or herself up from the earth and reaches towards the stars, looks up. It's the one who looks upwards. And in that process of looking upwards towards the ideas and away from the earth, uh, touch was sidelined and considered secondary, considered even to some extent threatening for Plato, because the optocentric world, the the, the centrality of the eye, be it the physical eye or the eye of the mind, is that which looks towards the light, towards the sun, a source of light, and towards the transcendental ideas. So with Plato and Platonism, you get a downgrading of the importance of touch, which, which is considered to be too immediate, too close to our animal sort of quadruped existence on the earth and this privileging of sight which gives us a distance and a control uh, vis-a-vis our others and our environment and lets us live in a more mental conceptual cognitive world Um, secondly i would point to the digital world i mean it's ironic that the word digital means finger or fingerprint um, which is our identity as we know in so many you know (laughs) Passing, passing through, um, uh, you know, security, security controls, and so on. But the digital is also our digital screen, that you know, our touch screen, 
which we which we enables us to enter into a virtual world, a disembodied world of hyperconnectivity, but at a, a disincarnate or what I call an excarnate level. Now, this is very important in terms of our ability to have freedom in our relations with others. We couldn't be having this conversation if it wasn't for digital media. So we know all the advantages, um, but we've also lost something in the process, and that is the sense of presence and proximity, which is so fundamental to human being. Um, And COVID has uh, exacerbated that even more and dramatized it even more because we now are forbidden to touch. Uh, the handshake is 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 out. Uh, we have to socially distance, and even you know turning a doorknob, we have to make sure that you know we have a sanitizer with us. So so uh, with COVID, there obviously has been a prohibition on touch for health reasons. But I think it's also a wake up call to us to realize that that is our most fundamental sense that we have taken for granted, and to some extent at our peril. So I'm not arguing for a, you know, sort of a jettisoning of our digital world and a return to some kind of primal um, immersion in animal nature. I'm saying we need both. We need the tactile relationship to others and the virtual, uh, both of which come through the digital, the digital fingerprint and the digital screen. So in this non-jettisoning of, I guess, the digital or the other senses, this, this brings me to another question which brings, I guess, the part of the COVID era that is, how can we touch with the with while maintaining social distance? Um, and it, when I was reading this, I was thinking of Ellen Siksu, who has um, a little line in one of her texts about um, uh, Noli Me Tangere, the with what Jesus says to Mary Magdalene, and she says that there, or she asks that are there other ways of touching than or touching without touching or without touching being touched? How can you do this with sight, um, with sound, with silence? Um, And you bring this up in the first chapter, which is, it's titled Coming to Our Senses, and you talk about maybe the synesthesia or the synesthetics of touch. And I wonder if we could just go through those, because I think they're really important concepts of how we might navigate different types of touch and how touch can serve as a basis for the other um, senses. Okay. Um, well, back to Noli Me Tangere, um, uh, do not touch me, uh, as Jesus um, allegedly said to Mary Magdalene uh, when she discovers him emerging from the tomb, um, doesn't actually mean do not touch me. It means do not grasp me, mm. do not hang on to me, do not try to possess me. Um, in fact, if you look at many of the portraits um, in religious art of that scene, you will see that Mary Magdalene is actually touching him. She is reaching out to him, but he is saying to her, um, not, you know, I'm not an embodied risen person. He's saying, don't try to cling. So there's touching and touching. And I take Rigore's point that touching doesn't have to be this possessing of the other, uh, the clinging, the grasping, but can be actually a way of touching without touching or touching at a distance, if you will. And this is where even with the COVID prohibition uh, on touch, uh, we can still have a certain kind of tangible tactile relationship with others through the other senses where touch is also 
at work. And this was the great insight of Aristotle in the De Anima, the first work of human psychology, when he said that touch is the most universal sense because it's not just in touching where we have double sensation, i.e. we touch and are touched at the same time. If I, if, if I take my hand and touch my other hand, I can experience touching and being touched at the same time. This is double sensation, reciprocity. But in the other senses, likewise, even though they seem to be unilateral, that you can see without being seen, hear without being heard, um, smell without being smelled, um, taste without being tasted, etc. The fact is that touch is at work universally and synesthetically throughout the other senses. For instance, when you look and you're not just dominating the other with, with your look, but you're receiving the other, you're actually you know, receiving, you're open to the presence of the other. And even at a physiological level, light is touching your, your iris, you know, your eye. Similarly with sound, if you really listen to another person, you receive the sounds into you and the vibrations, you know, reach into the inner ear. Uh, in all of the senses, therefore, there is an element in which we do not experience the word truly unless we are touched by it. As we, as our ordinary language says, you know, I find that person very touching or I was touched by what you said or what you did or touche, meaning you got that one right. Um, or somebody is touched by fire, you know, they have a genius or they have the touch, as we say, of a good cook or a good uh, healer or a good lover, they, a good artist, they have the touch. And uh, this is a recognition in our vernacular language that touch is something that operates not just literally in physical touch, but throughout the other senses in our relations with other people. So, yes, in that first chapter of the book, I go through the way in which what I call tactful sensation is at work, not just in tactful touch, you know, where we are sensitive to the other instead of imposing, you know, on, on the other tactilely, we we are sensitive to where they're at. We receive their sensitivities through our sensibility. That's genuine, tactful touch. You know, I mean, torture, rape, violation, molestation, they would all be forms, and Aristotle adds gluttony um, and brutishness. They're all forms of abusive touch, right? Where there isn't double sensation, there isn't reciprocity or mutuality. There's my imposing my will through my hand on the other. Uh, this, the, 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 you know, the stroke of a hand. But um, tactful touch, as I say, is this, is this extraordinary sensitivity and sensibility to being touched by others. Um, now, and this, of course, is very important even in sexual pedagogy, you know, which, which is so, so um, controversial these days with, you know, the Me Too movement and people realizing that abusive touch has done so much damage. Um, so there is a need for a new art, a new philosophy, a new pedagogy of touch, I do believe, to get back in touch with our senses. But we have tactful taste also, which is having good taste, <laughs> you know, and, and connoisseurs of food or, or of wine know what, um, what tasting can really mean. And, and you know, where the, the gourmand becomes the gourmet, where we really attend to flavors and this is true of anything, just appreciating some food that somebody gives you, appreciating where it comes from and who it comes from. So that I call a tactful taste, I call savvy. And it's also a, a, a word we use for a certain way of knowing things. You know, it's sort of a, a fundamental 
um, tactile, primal way of knowing, to have savvy, which is very often precognitive or preconceptual, then, uh, and indeed our word savvy comes from savourer, you know, the Latin word, savourer, um, savourer, in Romance languages, to savour, um, which in turn comes from sapientia, separate to taste. Sapientia, the word for wisdom, is actually a question of tasting, tasting truth. Uh, before we ever know truth, we taste truth. And then uh, I won't spend too long on it now, and we can go back to it if, if you wish, but in the other senses, um, I say, for example, that a tactful seeing or sight is insight uh, in, into the heart of things, where you see, as Seamus Sini says, you know, seeing things, seeing into the heart of things, not just our own, you know, categories and prejudices and presuppositions that we impose on things, but actually seeing into the heart of things is insight. That's tactful. Um, where we're touched by things as we see them. Merleau-Ponty, the philosopher, has a beautiful um, description of the painter Cézanne, who's painting Le Mont Saint-Victoire in the south of France and the forests. Uh, and he says, I had the impression as I was painting the trees that the trees were painting themselves through me, that as I was seeing them, they were seeing me. And that reciprocity makes for, for real, you know, aesthetic insight. Um, then at the level of... Um, so there's savvy, there's insight. At the level of um, hearing, it would be resonance, to let something resonate right, in you, um, something outside of you to resonate inside you, to resonate with someone or something outside of yourself. That is tactful um, hearing. And I think, have I covered all the senses? I think I have. If I've left one out, let me know. Sight. Sight, inside, savvy, um, flair, flair. There we you have go. To have okay, smell. I flair, smell, and <laughs> there you have it. You know, something we very often can learn from the animals. We talk about an animal flair, but when somebody has a flair for something, it is that sense of being able to scent, you know, the essence of something. And you know, parfumerie as an art, uh, in in aromas and appreciating aromas, obviously, is is a very refined cultivated uh, form of, 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 of sensation. But we have flair at every level, you know, um, right down from you know, the most um, refined perfume to, to the basic animal um, ephemerones, you know, that we pick up and, and uh, from other people and, and so on. So, so we're always scenting uh, our way in being, you know, as one, as one famous psychoanalyst put it, it all comes down to smell in the end. And there were forms of, you know, healing, going right back to Asclepius, that were very related to scent. The healer would be able to smell health and illness. And, um, you know, th that, that sort of flair for healing was, was, was very, very fundamental and is, I think, something we've, we've, we've almost lost, but perhaps is coming back again. You know, with, with COVID, one of the first things to go was, was scent. And that's very interesting. It's one of our sort of basic, basic um, animal ways of being connected to the world in a good sense. So uh, just as we, we've been deprived of touch through COVID, when we actually are infected with the virus, we lose touch and taste, which were, you know, our, our first two tactful sensations as we made our way in the world with others. Yeah, I, I think that's such a, a good insight, especially with um, 
I don't know. I there were lots of like New York Times or Atlantic articles interviewing people who had lost um, their sense of taste or smell, and I think it was something that, you know, a lot of people just thought that was a symptom, and it was it was like, oh, that's not that bad. Like the, I mean, obviously not being able to breathe or needing a needing to be hooked up to a machine that was a horrible cause of or effect of COVID. But I think what people didn't realize was how much we depend on our senses um, and what happens when just one or two of them are taken away and how that dislocates you from the world. Mm. Well, um, even when we say, you know, my sense of taste has, has left me, you know, I have no taste for things anymore. You know, our language actually, uh, and here I have great respect for ordinary language philosophers. Our language has a lot to tell us, our everyday language, uh, you know, and even just taking those ordinary vernacular words like taste and savvy and so on, have a taste for something, have a flair for something. Um, we do say those things, even though our intellectual culture since Plato, which kind of won the battle with Aristotle, Aristotle said, touch is the most fundamental sense because it's in all the senses. And it's that which exposes us in our most vulnerable, fragile being to, to newness, to otherness, to novelty, right? We're, we're most sensitive when we're most tactile. Uh, we're most sensible. It goes right across the board. But Plato won out with his optocentric uh, prejudice that it's actually sight which dominates the other senses that enables us to be an upright anthropos. And uh, I think, you know, with, with the whole questioning of what we're losing, both in the digital age and in the pandemic age, uh, I think we're recovering. We're, we're, it's a, it's a wake-up call to, to recover our fundamental senses, which are there, but which, as I say, we, we neglect or we take for granted. So I want to get back to the, to the philosophies of touch that you're talking about. Um, that You began with Aristotle and we talked about Plato. Um, but something that I was really interested in um, was your discussion of flesh. And I think this is something that you've, you've talked about in other texts that you've written. Um, so, so can you give us an idea of how, I think, so we've just been talking about how touch is not necessarily only tied to like touching things physically. I don't know. Now we've, we've deconstructed the word touch and everything can be touched, but touching things in the ordinary sense. How can how is that related to flesh and what does the fleshliness of I guess being human have to do with this importance of touch? Well, flesh is our is our embodiment. It's our living presence in the world. We have two kinds of bodies. Now I'm taking this from contemporary, you know, from modern phenomenology, Husserl and so on. I won't get technical, uh, Merleau-Ponty, Rigore. But um there, we have two kinds of body. We have the objective body, which in German was Körper. Our word corpse would come from that. And then, and that's the body is viewed objectively, empirically, you know, scientifically, or in a laboratory, um, the objectified body, as opposed to the lived body, which is not just an objective body, but also a subjective or intersubjective body. And that's our being in the world with others is, is in terms of our uh, embodiment. Our, our lived body, right, which is which is out there and in here at the same time, and there we are not separate, separate, isolated, atomic, discrete beings, which somehow have to figure out how we get into contact with other people. You know, how do our bodies uh, translate into mental ideas? The whole mind-body problem—that's not—that's an invention of philosophers, Plato and 
and the idealists and the rationalists. But actually, as phenomenology shows, once you get back to the things themselves, to the lived body, to our incarnate beings uh, in the flesh, you realize that we are interconnected from the word go. We are not originally separate beings. We separate out subsequently and become egos and autonomous self-governing uh, egos, if you will. But that is a fiction. I mean, the Buddhists are right about that. There is actually no substantial independent, autonomous, sovereign identity. Sartre was wrong. The Buddhists were right. Sartre and the Cartesians. Um, and I would say Plato. They were all wrong on that one. Uh, so it's very important, I think, to realize that that flesh is what makes us human. And it's not the body versus the mind. It's the body as mind and the mind as body. You know, as Merleau-Ponty puts it, we are body subjects. And he has a hyphen between body and subject. So that seems to me very important. Aristotle already recognized that flesh, what in the Greek sarx, S-A-R-X, uh, was not an organ, was not simply an organ, but was a medium, metaxo. And what he meant by that is we've got lots of organs, you know, livers and kidneys and heart and, uh, you know, what have you, um, um, spleens. But uh, flesh is not an organ that can be located anywhere in the body. Flesh is all of us. It's it's what we are as, as live flesh. And when you consider that skin, which is the epidermal manifestation of flesh, uh, is, is for most adults two square meters. You know, it's the largest um, organ we have, uh, which kind of allows us to be vulnerable, sensible, sensitive, attentive to the world and to others. Now, we cover ourselves up with clothes, with hair, um, uh, and with um, our prejudices and our categories and our, you know, self-defense mechanisms. But ultimately, in the flesh, we are vulnerable beings. We are born naked in the flesh. We die naked in the flesh. And uh, in between, we spend a lot of our times uh, fleeing the flesh because we're afraid of the vulnerability. We're afraid of the exposure to otherness, to novelty, to surprise, to shock. Um, but that's where growth comes. Growth comes from the flesh being exposed to the other. Um, and I think, you know, contemporary phenomenology has done a lot to bring back our awareness that we are first and foremost incarnate beings in the world with others. That makes me think of, um, you are probably familiar with um, Simone Weil's Gravity and Grace um, in, the, in the chapter titled Metaxu. Um, she talks about how she has the scenario of two prisoners who are separated by a wall. And that even though it's a separation, they can knock on it and communicate with each other. And she says every separation is a connection. Um, and I'm thinking of flesh maybe as something not necessarily that's just what separates us from the world, but it actually is what connects us to the world. It's what allows access. And I think that goes along with what you're saying and how touch, maybe in recovering touch, we have to remember we are not like these, the neoliberal atomized subject. And I think this is something that COVID really has brought out that we depend so much on each other. And I think touch can be a way of thinking about that, of how, um, like I'm always touching something. I'm touching my desk. I'm touching the air. Um, even when I'm not touching another person, there are other ways of reaching out across the earth or through time or through space. Like there's, there's no way to not touch. 
And I think that's well, a really yeah, and we are actually touched by the stars, you know, mm-hmm. uh, even physiologically, you know, it's not just a metaphysical or um, astrological or astrom- astronomical observation. It's um, it's just a scientific fact that the, the light vibrations touch us. Um, and moon, you know, the, 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 the life of the moon touches us in all sorts of ways, menstrual cycles, but also moods and, you know, equinoxes touch us. That, that, that We are connected. What flesh reminds us of and touch reminds us of is that we are in touch with the world. Even when we deny it, even when we flee it, we are in touch with the world and we are affected by the world. We are not just pure self-choosing subjects um, uh, who are thrown into the world of facticity. We, we are immersed in the world as we were immersed in, in an element like air and fire and earth and water. We are elemental beings. And one of the important things, I think, about the recovery of touch philosophically and culturally now, you know, with this wake-up call with the pandemic, as we become more aware of how important touch is to us, now that we've lost it or been deprived of it, as Joni Mitchell used to sing, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is also a wake-up call to to the environment, to the ethics of the environment and uh, ecology, you know, the climate crisis, that um, this is a matter of life and death. And we are beholden to the earth. We are beings um, that are incarnate in the earth. And the new awareness that you find, particularly in the younger generation, um, in terms of sort of an eco-ethics and an, an eco-sensibility vis-a-vis trees and water and rivers and, and you know, nature and animals and plants, this is a huge um, conscientization at a planetary level that seems to me absolutely fundamental. Um, and coming back to what you said about touch, I I think of, you know, the story you mentioned, Simone Weil, I think of, uh, you know, the Count of Monte Cristo, who's imprisoned in the Chateau d'If um, off the south coast of France, and he hears tapping on the wall. Mm-hmm. And, you know, eventually he realizes somebody in, a, in another cell, and they, they finally meet. Um, and it's one of the most beautiful scenes in the, in the film. But in a way, it's a... It's a, it's a metaphor for, for our lives that we have ended up in separate cells and we there's knocking going on, but are we aware of it? And if we are, then we can finally break through again to those others that are there, but we've constructed these walls between us, you know, politically, culturally, and, and, and so on. And I would just um, add in terms of the importance of touch that touch is always on. You know, you can close your eyes and not see. You can close your ears and not hear. But you can't turn off touch. If you turn off touch, you are dead, right? Even when you're asleep, the body is tactile and tangible. It's only at the moment of death that you lose touch. And that's why, you know, the old test was you'd cut the body and, you know, um, if the person feels nothing, they're gone. Um, the only two parts of our body, of our entire body, that are not tactile or tangible are our nails and our hair. And that's why if you go into a beauty salon 
and you see people having their hair cut uh, or their nails cut, you don't find them screaming because they're not feeling it. Um, but the rest of our body, all two square meters of it for the average adult is always on. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So you you bring up that they wouldn't be screaming. And I think this idea of pain is where I want to go to next because you talk, you spend a considerable amount of time talking about healing. Um, And I think this is part of the recovering. Um, It might not be this type of like recovering, getting back to touching, but it's, Healing is recovery. Um, and I think I want to ask about um, how is touch related to healing and, and what are you trying to bring out with this and how maybe we need a type of healing that's based on touch or get back to a more originary type of healing? Mm-hmm. Well, you look at the wisdom traditions. In all of them, you will find that healing comes through touch. I mean, in the in the Abrahamic tradition, it's very obvious, you know, when, um, in the Jewish, Christian, Islamic um, traditions of healing, you find the laying on of hands is absolutely, you know, pivotal. Um, you find it in the Greek tradition too. I mean, I won't go into the Eastern traditions uh, now. They're not my particular area of competence, although I'm very interested in, in the importance of touch in Hinduism and Buddhism. But, um, you know, when the Buddha looks for wisdom, what does he do? He His hand reaches down to the ground. Um and you will find in, you know, Buddhist practices, this idea of grounding and being in touch with your breathing, you know, in the yoga tradition is very much coming back into touch with, with the body. But in, in the Western Greek tradition of healing, you had two basic um, movements, inaugural movements. You had Hippocrates, hence our Hippocratic tradition, which we have to this day, the Hippocratic Oath, which all healers and doctors um, uh, commit, commit to. And um, and you have the other tradition is the Asclepian from Asclepius. And it seems to me both are necessary. But in our Western modern culture, we've lost the Asclepian, although I think we're trying to get it back again now. And uh, we have let the Hippocratic reign. Now, the Hippocratic basically operates according to a model of supervision, vision, supervision, optocentric control, intervention, uh, management of pain and curing. That's our medical model, more or less today, even imaging t- technologies, x-rays and so on, indispensable. Who wants to do without that? Nobody. <clears throat> but the level of the tactile, you know, the what was called the old bedside manner is, is reduced to a minimum for insurance reasons. You know, all sort of medical consultations have to be kept to a minimum. Half of the time, the doctor, you know, is not looking at you or, or, or taking your hand or your pulse, but is actually spending more time looking at the computer screen where all your records are coming up. And um, that's just the way it is. <clears throat> Digital, you know, medicine has become e-medicine um, <clears throat> uh, and, and digital medicine um, more and more. <clears throat> Excuse me. But the Asclepian, going back to Asclepius, was another way of healing 
that was supplementary and complementary, and I would argue even more fundamental. And that was uh, carried out synesthetically. It operate, operated through touch, laying of hands, um, uh, music, uh, movement, um, the ingestion of herbs, um, uh, the incubation of the body in the earth, uh, where it would be literally put to sleep for hours, uh, days, even weeks sometimes, and, uh, you know, kept alive with water and, and so on. But the, the idea was that you go back into the earth, particularly if you're suffering from a very profound illness, um, mental illness in particular. And then you would be visited by, by dreams very often where Asclepius would appear, interesting in the form of an animal, um, <clears throat> a cock or a horse or a dog or a serpent. And that was also a sort of a return to the healing powers of the earth, to our animal nature. Um, and it's, uh, it operated very much through touch. In fact, Asclepius was the disciple of Chiron, who was the first wounded healer. He himself was wounded in a hunt with boars and, uh, and then subsequently uh, in, a, in a battle. Uh, but instead of, um, uh, instead of imposing uh, injury on his enemy, um, or his opponent, he actually lived the wound in such a way that he healed others. So he was the wounded healer. And this was the paradox, uh, which you even find in the, you know, in, in this scepter and the serpent on pharmacies and chemists, even to this day. Um, the serpent was considered the pharmacon in Greek, uh, who, who, who could poison you, but could also cure you. So the idea that the wound, in the wound, you can find the healing. And they even say in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis that it's, you know, trauma speaking to trauma. If somebody as a healer doesn't recognize their, and assume their own woundedness, uh, they cannot really be sensitive or attentive or sensible when it comes to healing others. So the wounded healer in oneself speaks to the wounded healer in, in the other. And that's the Asclepian tradition. Uh, which was very, very important and, uh, you know, was theatrical. There are even theatres to this day, Epidaurus in Greece, which was devoted to Asclepius, and Asclepian rituals, uh, which, as I say, involved the whole body and were very incarnate and carnal as modes of, um, uh, as modes of, of healing, as opposed to, I repeat, the, the Hippocratic, which was very sort of top-down, very cognitive, um, but as I say, you, we need both. And I think in our contemporary age, what people would sometimes call now alternative healing through herbs, through, you know, um, deep tissue massage, through yoga, um, through breathing, all of that coming back in touch with the body uh, is very, um, even psychedelics, you know, a lot of the psilocybin healing that's going on now is coming back into the body in a way that, as I say, supplements Hippocratic healing. So you, you bring up psychoanalysis, and I think I wanted to ask about that in the sense that um, your chapter on this type of healing and trauma begins with the question of psychoanalytic origins. And I th when we think of psychoanalysis, or um, maybe if people don't want to think of psychoanalysis, maybe of psychotherapy or something similar, um, we think of talking, we think of the mind, and I think the last thing someone, I mean, there's that thought of, um, if you know the, the, the story of Lacan touching the woman on the cheek 
for the Gestapo. Um, so she she was visited by the Gestapo, the Gestapo in the mornings, and she mentioned she had a dream every morning at 5 a.m., and that's when the Gestapo would come, and she's French, so she, she says Gestapo, and at that moment, Lacan gets up and touches her face, and it's a Gestapo, and he, he re-signifies that term. Um, but I was, that's like something that wouldn't happen today, and I mean, I, my therapist would never touch me in any way. I think that would be some kind of a break in the bond or in maybe even like legal doctrines. I don't know. Um, but how can we think about touch in these really mind-based um, therapies or things that we think of as only belonging to, you know, maybe a Cartesian duality between body and mind that privileges the mind over the body? Yeah. Well, you know, the beginnings of psychotherapy and psychoanalysis and trauma studies are very interesting because Freud initially in the 1890s did believe in sort of a fundamental laying on of hands. And then, you know, after his studies of hysteria and so on, he became much more cerebral and the talking cure took over. Although ironically, in his first work on trauma um, therapy, Beyond the Pleasure Principle, he has a scene where he talks about his little grandson, Ernst, uh, having a tantrum and crying hysterically when when Ernst's mother leaves, who happened, Sophie Freud, who is Freud's daughter, and Ernst's mother. And the little boy plays with a spool of cotton and he casts the spool away and he says, fought, gone. And then he pulls it back and he says, da. And Freud realizes that with these two words, he is uh, gone back again. He is actually miming the coming and going of the mother and becoming sort of the master of his own destiny through this little illusory play. Um, and that this alleviates the anxiety because he finds a, a symbolic substitute for the coming and going of the mother that as a you know, 14-month-old 14 child, uh, he couldn't, or 18-month-old, I think he was, he couldn't, he couldn't figure out. Uh, so that transference of, of, of confusion and pain at the loss and departure of its mother was mother was his first little trauma that he dealt with by making up this game of words. But what Freud failed to realize at that point was that the boy is not just using two words, the shortest story ever told, fought down, gone back again. He's also playing with his hands. He's, he's pushing the, wood, the, the cotton spool away and then taking it back again and grasping it, letting it go, holding it, letting it go, holding it. And that, I think, is where psychoanalysis went wrong. It separated the talking cure from the touching cure, so to speak. And it became very, very cognitive. Um, now, with contemporary uh, trauma studies, uh, this is changing radically. I mean, one of the one of the authors I cite at great length in the in the Touch book is um, Van der Kalk. His book, "The Body Keeps the Score," where he shows that in trauma therapy, and he, go, he goes through Winnicott and you know the the attachment theorists um, to show that. Uh, our, our full uh, carnal presence and co-presence in a healing situation is absolutely essential. Um, that includes, you know, re, re, as well as medication, obviously, which is important, and as well as psychotherapeutic talk, which is important. Nobody's denying that. It, we, we also need more and more a full holistic approach to the body and not just the mind. You can't cure the mind without also and at the same time curing the body because we are incarnate embodied beings. And uh, that's where things like breathing, rapid eye movement, 
um, massage, uh, even animal therapy with horses, dolphins, dogs, um, for some autistic kids have proved to be very, very important. Um, so this whole dimension of touch uh, and being in touch, even you can be present with somebody sitting in a seat opposite you, that is actually very tangible. It doesn't literally mean, you know, putting your hand on the cheek or as Merleau-Ponty describes in Phenomenology of Perception, Binswanger, the famous existential psychotherapist who at one point stood up, walked over and placed his hand on the throat of his patient as the patient was suffering a spasm, uh, the patient was aphasic. And just that touch did something that released the spasm and uh, healed the trauma. Uh, now, you have to know the right moment for that. But uh, coming back to your point that your therapist would never, ever dream of touching you. Well, when I suffered from a very bad depression once, I had a, a, a therapist in Paris. Uh, and um, every every session we had began with her shaking my hand and every um, session ended with her hugging me. Now, you may say, well, that's very Gallic and very you know, <laughs> Latinate. That's what Latins do. But maybe Binswanger happens to be German, you know, not Gallic. And um, I think I think more and more people are realizing whether it's literally touch the handshake to begin or end or just being present to somebody in a tangible way. So that, for example, if they weep, you don't just sit back and wait for the signifier to pop up verbally, <laughs> linguistically. You actually, you know, reach out and put put a hand on on their shoulder or their arm or, or you you give them a Kleenex or you know you you reassure them in some way and so again it's not a literalism of touch it's being tangible being tangibly present whereas the old psychoanalytic model the freudian model you know of, of the patient uh, not looking at the at the analyzand uh, or the analyst and lying down, you know, with eyes closed, where there was only the words being heard. And now I, I accept that that can help with free association at a linguistic level and an unconscious level, but it deprives the healing relationship of all the Asclepian moments um, that it seems to me are equally important. Talk alone is not enough. It's absolutely essential as I would say, for many forms of clinical depression, medication is essential. But uh, we also need the the art, uh, the art of healing touch, the bedside manner, as it used to be called. So with the idea of touch as being just essential to healing, I want to move into your last chapter, or not the last chapter, the fifth chapter on reclaiming touch in the age of excarnation. Um, so we've talked a little bit about... Um, you know, the digital age as being an age in which we are disembodied or embodied somewhere else or we're excarnate. And you write that um, we are witnessing a shift in our relation to the body. Um, can you say a little more about, I, mean, I think, this relation to the shift and how we relate to the body? Um, and I'm thinking particularly of how it relates to your epigram, which is technology connects us but not, does not bring nearness. So how is touch related to nearness and how is the digital age doing something to destroy that type of nearness? Um, and like maybe how we can, how you're perceiving recovery without, you know, just saying like, 
just get rid of technology. Technology's bad. I don't think anybody's going to say that anymore. Um, but how do we recover it with alongside technology? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a both hand. I mean, mm-hmm. as you say, nobody wants to or should want to get rid of technology. You know, it's like getting rid of um, penicillin, you know, or electricity mm-hmm. um, or locomotion. It, it just doesn't make sense. The gains are, are massive um, thanks to, you know, the, the digital world. Um, but attendant upon digital connectivity is the danger of hyper-connectivity, where we are so instantaneously uh, plugged into so many multiple sources that we're not actually attending to any single one. And it's a phenomenon that studies have showed that uh, with that hyper-connectivity comes also chronic loneliness, particularly in the Z generation and the millennials, and uh, suffer from a huge sense of isolation. So you you can have all the social media in the world and as many Facebook friends in the world, but some aspect of human connection is lost in the hyper-connectivity. The digital fingerprint gets, as it were, um, subsumed into the digital code. Um, so what we need is both, is both uh, you know, a deeper um, deployment and, and more intelligent, sensitive deployment of, of digital technology, Uh, and at the same time, a recovery of our primal sensitivity as as beings in the world, incarnate in the world. And I think our our digital culture, in a way, is teaching us this lesson in many respects. In in that, I think, fifth chapter of the book, I cite many TV series, Westworld or movies like Ex Machina or Her, where you have these androids and cyborgs being created, sort of a contemporary version of the Frankenstein story, um, and these sort of so-called ideal beings. But the one thing that's always missing, you will find in 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 these in the in, in gaming in 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 the movies in the in the TV series, uh, are uh, cable series are is touch, is the tactile relationship. You see it again and again, uh, beautifully described in her where. You know, the, the, the protagonist falls in love with uh, an operating system, but it's a pure it's a pure sign. It's a pure voice. And what he's missing is the incarnate contact with with the, the physical other. And it, it explores how that is possible and impossible. The same for Ex Machina. Um, I'm sure your, your listeners have, have, are very familiar with these with these scenes and increasingly, you know, Death Stranding and other and other games um, with you know, millions of viewers are, are, are pointing to this need to reconnect. So it's kind of the computer saying to us, don't forget that you're an embodied being as well as a disembodied one, that you're a real person as well as a, as well as a virtual person. And we are both. Um, so I think the growing awareness also, as I said earlier, of, of the climate, of the environment, of the elements in which we live and breathe, uh, and the urgency to you know to to work together in solidarity around that, particularly for the for the young generation. I think it was UNESCO did a did a global report um, asking you know millions of people, all five continents under the age of forty, what is the most important pressing moral problem of our time? 
The answer, 80% was the environment, the planet. And that's getting back into touch with our lived interspecies uh, coexistence with, with other human beings and other beings, you know, animal and mineral and vegetable. Um, so that's where I would be very hopeful. And we can be, again, you know, conscientized. Our awareness can be raised by digital communications. What's going on in the Amazon? You know, what's going on in, in, in the floods in Sydney as we speak? What's going on in the fires in, you know, California? Uh, we know that thanks to digital communications. So we need to be connected to what's going on in the world to be aware. But then we need to actually, you know, go into the streets and do something about it. And, um, you know, as E.M. Foster says, only connect. And the connection is both both digital as code and communications, but also uh, digital as the fingerprint, the handshake. Mm -hmm. I was thinking... Um, when I was reading this about the, the touch screen and how those are so ubiquitous um, of um, I think it's Eve Sedgwick who has um, she writes on texture because she was an artist working with um, like knit and I don't know like craft um, but she comes up with the difference between texture with one X and texture with two X um, and part of that difference is like feeling things with like different different textures on something and how a lot of our world today is is smooth and I was I was thinking about how like when you touch your phone and then I touch my computer and then I touch like the cover of a book I think how many things I touch during my day that has no texture and almost feels like I'm trying to touch nothing um, and I was thinking about that I mean I don't know if you have any thoughts on that but like just extemporaneous but I was thinking about how maybe there's almost a lack of touching even within touching like my phone tries to make it so that it seems like I'm, I'm just barely like I just barely have to tap my screen and it comes up with something and there's almost something anxious about like like if I have to touch too hard I'm I know something's wrong mm -hmm. yeah well you know we 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 have maybe become more insensitive to the textuality of touch or arguably and paradoxically more sensitive, potentially. I mean, you know, what you're describing there actually is an awareness of the differences and maybe the, the absences of, of touch. I mean, the very observation that in a, a slight tip of your finger, of your digital finger, you can enter into a global network of communication, right? The slightest touch can bring. Um, so it's a touch screen that, that warrants or that, that allows the exit from touch. But that very conundrum, that very paradox gets you to think about touch. What is touch such that a single touch can exit from touch? Um, and that's, I think, half the battle is just getting people to not take it for granted, not to, not to take touch for granted or not to take the lack of touch for granted, but to question it. And that's, that's what philosophy is. It's raising the question of touch. That is half the battle. And um, I think if the pandemic, if the digitalization of our experience at so many levels, not just communications, which we've been talking about, or or popular culture, or art, 
But at all levels, banking, schooling, um, sports even, esports, you know, um, practically every domain of our existence because of the pandemic has been at least in part replaced by some e-network of communications. In, in, you know. so, so we're aware of the richness of digital technology, but also of what is lost in translation. And something is lost in translation. And that's why people can Zoom with their loved ones in hospital as they die or be on the iPhone with them. And that's very important. But they all know those dying and the, 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 the loved ones who want to be with them, that what they are really missing is that ultimate final parting touch. And that's fundamental to people. I don't know of one case, it'd be very hard to find a case where the dying person or the, or the, or the loved one was to say, you know, the family member, you know, it was actually better on online. Who yeah. needs to go into that messy hospital and into the wards and, you know, get in the way of the nurses? No, no, it's fine. This is, this is, this is as good. No, everybody felt the lack of it. And as I think I mentioned earlier, you know, studies of, of children, you know, infant, infant touch, when children are born, they need to be touched. If they are held and touched and nourished, they they thrive and flourish. If not, as in, for example, the case of the orphans in Ceausescu's, you know, Romanian uh, regime, um, they, the infant mortality, they died. They literally withered and died. I think the infant mortality rate was 60% in the first year. Children that are not touched and those who survived survived with huge physical and 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 psychic impairments so you know the facts are there medically and clinically and statistically to remind us that at the beginning of life and the end of life touch is absolutely indispensable and in between likewise however much we may take it for granted yeah what you were just talking about with the the pandemic it reminded me i was talking with maybe my mom like a few months ago about how much like she was like, I don't know, when was the last time you touched someone? And I I didn't, I was like uh, a very long time ago. But it, I mentioned like, I also don't think I've accidentally touched anyone in a, in a very long time. Like I said something like, oh my gosh, I would just, I would give anything to like bump into someone at the store. And I think something that this pandemic has done has made us almost hyper aware of our bodies and like the anxiety of touch even though, you know, like, I don't think, I don't think if I like just like bump shoulders with someone, I'm going to get COVID, but there's a fear of, of the what if. And I think that's, that's really come out in the last year. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting if you, if you watch a child enter a room, a young child, right? A toddler, the first thing they'll do is, is to figure out where they are by touching things. First thing they reach out to touch. Um, and you know, <laughs> One of the great paintings of Genesis uh, by Michelangelo is Yahweh and Adam reaching out to touch. Right In the beginning is touch. And the sensitivity of touch, the very gap between the two fingers, is still a tangible tactile relationship of the importance of touch as they reach out to touch. Reaching out to touch is as important as actually touching. So you're wanting to kind of bump accidentally into people um, is itself 
an expression of a touch hunger, which has become such a feature mm -hmm. of our pandemic uh, digital age. So I think that's very important. Um, yeah. Well, I have one final question. Um, and I think that I hope that it's touch is still something you're working on in the future because this was such a provocative book. And I think it'll come out more as we enter a post. I don't think we'll be ever be truly post COVID. I think it'll, it's here with us to stay. But as we are maybe able to touch a little bit more, what are you thinking about going into the future? Um, either related to this or unrelated? Do you have anything in the pipeline already or well, thoughts coalescing? Yeah, I mean, I'm very, I'm very struck by the advances now being made in sort of digital experiments with touch. Because I end the book with a plea for the conjoining, right, of both worlds, our, our virtual digital world and our carnal digital world. Um, and I think to be fully human, we, we need both. But I was very, very taken by an experiment that one of my colleagues here in Boston, Kate Bisbee, who works in digital technology, uh, told me about, which is a haptic vest that has now been uh, invented, where you can have headgear that gives you, you know, the sensation of being a tree and you're looking out over the forest and you hear the noises of the winds and the birds and the insects. And then with this vest, you actually experience tangibly the swaying of the leaves and branches. And it, it's very interesting for me that, you know, if touch is our first sense in the womb and the last to leave us at death, um, the need in digital technology to find some way of reconnecting with touch, you know, through this haptic technology, as it's called, is the last one to come. We've had digital sound, digital sight uh, far earlier than we've had uh, digital touch. But I think there it, there's an interesting, maybe brave new world uh, opening up where we can try and bring the tactile closer to the digital and then the digital back in touch with the, with the tactile. That's, that's the paradox and that's the challenge to bring them together. Well, that sounds interesting. I hope you can do it. <laughs> I hope someone can do it. That's, that sounds it like a very- It won't be me, but it might be <laughs> other, you know, brilliant artists and, and, and scientists and maybe even philosophers and psychologists, who knows? Yeah, it's exciting to know that someone's working on it. I've, I've not heard yeah. of that project and I, I would love a haptic vest. I think it'd be very cool. Mm, there you go. <laughs> um, I imagine it's very expensive. Uh, so maybe I won't have oh, well. for a while. <laughs> maybe in 10 years time, we'll all be going around with our haptic yeah. vest. <laughs> yeah, that'd be cool. Um, well, I want to say thank you for coming onto the podcast and talking with us about your book. It was a very interesting conversation um, and has left me with a lot to think about. Very good. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Britt. So once again, that was Richard Kearney from a, or a professor of philosophy at Boston College. We were talking about his book, Touch, the Recover, or Recovering Our Most Vital Sense, which was out earlier from earlier this year from Columbia University Press. Um, I'm Britt Edelin. I'm your host at the New Books Network on the New Books and Literary Studies channel. Um, thank you, and until next time.